Well, thank you, Smileys. Good morning, church. My name's Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff and excited to open God's word with you this morning. You'll have to bear with me a little bit. I feel like I got the wind knocked out of me a little bit with our worship uh, through song this morning. We don't often talk about this, but I, it's probably worth just expressing how grateful I am to God for the way in which uh, the musicians and artists in this church faithfully and discerningly prepare music for us to sing. I, I, every week, I mean, it kind of can feel routine, but it is not routine, and I'm very grateful. And I was very overwhelmed this morning through the worship, so I'm grateful for the way God's using you guys. Thanks for that. Uh, we, as a church this morning, are finishing up our series called uh, Forget What You've Heard out of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Now, uh, in case you're joining us for the first time, you are literally catching us on the very last week of this series, and that's fine. You'll, you'll be able to track right along. In fact, I'm going to do a quick summary here in a second. But it could be worth it for you to go back, and on our website and on the church app, you can go back and listen to these messages from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where we hear arguably the most important sermon that Jesus preached and, and a very clear sort of articulation of his philosophy and approach, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God and uh, to really sort of turn on its head everything that we hear in our culture and everything that we hear in the world, everything that comes naturally to us. Uh, Jesus says, well, there's another way. There's a different way, an opposite, and in some ways an opposing way. And uh, this morning we come to his conclusion of that. So uh, if you have one of the Matthew journals. I invite you to turn to Matthew 7. If you have a Bible, you have the Bible on your phone, whatever. You're looking for Matthew chapter 7, and we're actually picking up uh, this morning about halfway through that chapter in verse 13. Now, just to give you a summary of where we've been in this study, and I don't want to take too much time with this, so I'll just kind of do it off the top of my head. But remember that as Jesus uh, gathers his disciples, there's also a crowd of other people, followers on, if you will, who are sort of watching from a little bit more of a distance. And Jesus is teaching the disciples, but he recognizes that there are others who are listening to this message. And he begins by talking about the character of, of the kingdom dweller, the character of the kingdom of dweller, dweller, which includes things like meekness, which includes things Things like poverty of spirit, uh, mourning over your own sin, uh, a recognition of mercy towards other people, being a peacemaker, being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And many of those things would have felt very contrary to the people listening to him at the time. They feel very contrary to us today because a lot of times when we think about people who seem like they are religious or who seem like they are followers of God, most of the time they put on this outward facade of uh, confidence and sometimes arrogance and maybe even a self-assuredness that Jesus says, well, that's not indicative of a true kingdom dweller. A, a true kingdom dweller, a true ambassador of the kingdom of God recognizes his own desperation, recognizes his own spiritual bankruptcy, recognizes how desperately he needs to be rescued from his self and from his sin. And so Jesus says, forget what you've heard about what you think religious appearance should be and instead be humble, be lowly, be gentle and kind. All of this sort of character. He goes on to say that in the, uh, in the execution of living that kind of a meek and humble life, a, a life of poverty of spirit, that we will be influential, that we as followers of Christ have the opportunity to serve as a preservative and to serve as an illuminating presence in our world that is dark, that we can be salt and light. And in that capacity, he would say, I haven't come to, to undo the law or to set the law aside, but to say that if all you're doing is simply complying with the law, you've missed the point. So you might look at the law and go, well, I haven't murdered anybody or I haven't technically committed adultery. But Jesus goes, it was never just about not doing particular sins. It was always about having the right kind of heart. 
So even though you may not have murdered someone, if you have hatred in your heart, you're still in violation. You're still spiritually bankrupt. And while you may never have cheated on your husband or cheated on your wife, if you have lust in your heart towards other people, you're still spiritually bankrupt. There is still a brokenness in you. He's saying that that there is a a sort of a recalibration of the way we think about our lives, the way we think of ourselves, the way we think about our need for God. He talks about kingdom character. He talks about our influence. He talks about our legalism and our morality. He talks about our religious practice. He says, you know, it's possible to even do religious things with the wrong motive. That maybe you're giving, uh, maybe you're being generous, but you're doing it in such a way to draw attention to yourself. Maybe you're praying, which isn't a bad thing, but maybe you're praying in such a way that you want everybody to hear how beautiful your prayers are. And he says, when you do that, you're not glorifying God, you're just glorifying yourself. And so again, he's recalibrating, saying, forget what you've heard. He talks about our motives, right? And the things that motivate us. He talks about our treasure. He says, we have tended to overvalue stuff. We've tended to overvalue uh, earthly wealth or the opinions of others. We've tended to overvalue all these things. And he says, none of those things matter. God will give you the, the stuff you need. Instead of overvaluing stuff and undervaluing people, we should undervalue stuff and overvalue people. And in the section we looked at last week, he talks about having a judge heart and this mindset that looks at other people and judges them instead of recognizing in humble solidarity that all of us are spiritually bankrupt, that all of us are impoverished and that we all need a redeemer, that we all need to be rescued. That's when we have the opportunity to be salt and light. So he comes to the end of this long message and uh, it's no surprise to a kid who grew up as a fundamental Baptist, but he finishes his sermon With an invitation, with an invitation. Now that might not mean anything to some of you, but I think it's really interesting and kind of stirring that Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount with an invitation. Now in the church I grew up in when I was a little kid, every week, it was like a part of the service. So you know in your church services you've got uh, worship through song, you've got the reading of scripture, you might have a pastoral prayer, you might take communion. Uh, There are all kinds of different elements. Some churches do announcements or different things. In my church growing up, there was every week a part at the end of the service which was called the invitation. And during the invitation at the church I grew up in, the band would come back up and they would play a song like Just As I Am or uh, Trust and Obey or there were, there were a variety of them that they chose. And they would play that song over and over and over and over again until eventually people would come down the aisle to receive prayer in the front. Now, occasionally in this church, uh, we do an invitation like that. We'll invite people to come and receive prayer. We'll invite people to go uh, to the prayer room or to come forward and talk to people about how they can be followers of Christ. But at the church I went to growing up, you couldn't go home. Like you couldn't leave church until somebody had responded to the invitation. And so as, a, as like a little kid, Man, you'd get to the end of that service and you were hungry, man. You were ready to get the first cafeteria or whatever. And they're playing just as I am. And you know they're not going to quit playing it until somebody comes forward. And eventually somebody's got to bite the bullet. And so somebody would get up. And sometimes it was me. Would get up and walk down the aisle. I didn't even, have, I didn't even know what I was doing. I just wanted the service to be over. And so I'd come forward just to shut the band up so we could go and get some fried chicken. You know what I'm saying? That was my memory of an invitation. Now it's interesting Because in practice today, in in a lot of religious circles, we've moved away from the idea of an altar call. We've moved away from the idea of uh, calling people forward. And and again, like I said, we do that in this church, and it's always brilliant and beautiful. It's lovely when we do it. We don't do it all the time because there has been uh, some criticism over time of manipulation, of people just coming forward so they can go to the cafeteria afterwards or whatever. Uh, In order to dodge that, I think churches, the pendulum has swung way to the other end many times where they don't do any kind of 
invitation at all. And so I want to just take a second as we begin our study of this section by noting here that Jesus concludes with an invitation. And the reason that's important, this isn't a, you know, play just as I am three or four times, but it is a call to action. I want you to understand as people who are a part of this body or maybe who are guests and just sort of looking in this morning, that it is my conviction, it is my belief that every biblical sermon preached by a biblical shepherd always results in an invitation of some kind. Now, it might not be a call to come down the aisle and pray with prayer partners in the front. It might not be that sort of a thing. But there is always a call to action. A biblical sermon or biblical preaching is never thrown out just for simple contemplation. It's never thrown out just for the sake of evaluation and assessment. A preacher, like myself, never preaches with the goal in mind of having people go, wow, I really like the things he said, or I really like the way he said it. The goal in biblical preaching is always to move the listener. And that is because that was the goal of Jesus. The goal of Jesus was always to move the listener. In fact, we see in the Old Testament, there are several places. We'll look at a couple this morning. But in the Old Testament, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an early example here. Um, in Ezekiel, when God is pronouncing judgment upon Jerusalem, part of the reason why he pronounces judgment upon them is that they had gotten to a place where they would listen to the voice of the prophet. And at the end, they would go wasn't that an interesting speech? And they would not move in response to it at all. So Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30 and following says this, it's God speaking to Ezekiel. He says, as for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, and their heart is set on their gain. Behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. This is God's accusation towards the people. He says to Ezekiel, the people will come and listen. They'll, in fact, invite their friends. They'll tell other people, hey, let's go and listen to what the Lord has to say. He says, but they're essentially listening to your teaching as an entertainment. They're listening to your teaching to go, wow, wasn't that beautiful? Or wasn't that interesting? Or wasn't that stirring? But they are never moved. They have no intention to do it. And in this particular text, God says they don't want to do it. While he gives their motivation, he says it is for with lustful talk in their mouths they act. And their heart is set on their gain. I want us to feel a sense of caution as we come to this final section of the Sermon on the Mount preached by the Lord Jesus himself and recognize that it was never his intention for us to listen to what he said and go, oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, that's so moving. Doesn't he do such a great job? What a great uh, speaker Jesus is. It's worth noting that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in the last two verses of this chapter, it says that the people were astonished by his teaching. I want you to know, the goal of Jesus' preaching in the Sermon on the Mount was not to astonish the crowds. He wasn't trying to wow them. He wasn't trying to uh, awe them with his oratory expertise. He was trying to move them. And the goal of biblical preaching is always to move us. And so in those moments where we're tempted to listen to a a preacher or we're tempted to listen to a podcast or even tempted to open the pages of our Bible simply to appreciate what has been said for its artistic beauty, we're missing the point of the declaration of God. When God declares a thing, he declares it to move us. And so as Jesus finishes this message, which has been beautiful, which is articulate, 
which is eloquent. As he finishes it, he finishes it with an invitation. And we would be wise to pay attention to the invitation because he's calling us to do something, not just to hear. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, as he finishes up, he says this with, with an emphatic, right? He says, enter. Matthew seven thirteen. the first thing he says here is, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The first thing Jesus says is enter by the narrow gate. Walk the narrow path. And he juxtaposes that picture of a narrow gate and a narrow path with a wider gate and a wider path. He says there's basically two responses. The call is to enter the narrow gate. That's the invitation. Enter the narrow gate. So then for us, we have to look at it and go, okay, what's he talking about here? Right? What gate does he mean? Is he talking about the gate of Jerusalem? Is he talking about the gate of spiritual poverty? Is he talking about the gate of not doing religious things for selfish reasons? Like which gate? No, no, no. It's, it's way more overarching than that. All of those things are steps on the pathway. But what we have to understand is that Jesus himself is the gate. Jesus himself is the gate. He's saying to them, enter through me. By me. Uh, The way we know that is by looking at other things Jesus has taught. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I'm the way in. Not only does Jesus say, I'm the way in, but in John chapter 14, uh, verses 5 and 6, in verse 5, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus here is declaring in John, which we studied not too long ago, that he is both the gate and the narrow path. He is the entrance and he is the way. And there is an important distinction here that there is a moment of decision. So when we talk about an invitation, the reason why the church I grew up in liked an invitation where they could call people to repentance, they could call people to action, is that there is a moment for all of us where we have to make a decision whether we're going to follow Christ, whether we're going to enter into Christ and follow on the path that is Christ, or if we're going to go a different way. Now, the reason there's a narrow gate and a broad gate is that essentially the broad gate he's talking about here, it's not, it's not one specific thing. So it's not secularism. It's not apostasy. The broad gate isn't just uh, heresy. It's not, it, the broad gate is broad because it is literally anything else and everything else. The reason that gate is broad and the reason that path is wide and there are a lot of people who find it and walk it is that it literally encompasses any other pursuit other than Jesus. There is a narrow gate and there is a broad gate. It's Jesus and anything and everything else. So it doesn't matter what else you're following or who else you're following. If you aren't following Jesus, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, if there hasn't been a moment in time where you made the decision in response to the movement of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of God's word to enter into Christ, to trust in him, to rescue you from sin and death. If you have not made a decision to put your faith in Jesus, you're trusting in something else. You're trusting in your own philosophy. You're trusting in your own pursuits. Maybe you're trusting in your wealth, or maybe you're trusting in your winsome nature. Maybe you're trusting in, uh, maybe you're trusting in a false religion. You could be trusting in all kinds of things. Maybe you're trusting in a political system. Maybe you're trusting in uh, pe- people's affection for you. I-, I don't know, but it's a broad gate. Jesus says there's only two. There is one narrow way, and that's Him. He is the gate, 
And he is the path. Jesus is the gate. And Jesus is the path. It is narrow, he says. And unpopular and hard. But it leads to life. Well, what does he mean? It's narrow and unpopular and hard. Well, just look at Jesus's life. Where does Jesus go? If he's asking us to emulate his life, if he's asking us to reveal him in the way we live, where does Jesus go? Well, he goes into the lives of sinners. He goes into the lives of those who are rejected. He goes into the lives of those who are oppressed and estranged from the rest of the culture. And he loves them and cares for them. And ultimately, where does Jesus go? He goes straight up a hill and is nailed to a cross for the good of other people. That's where Jesus goes. Is that, is that an easy path? It isn't. It's a path of sacrifice. It's a path of death to self. It's a path of caring about others more than, more than yourself. It is not easy. And the reason why Jesus will say that this narrow gate, there are few that are on it, that it is hard, it leads to life, but there are few find it. He says that there are few find it. It's not because it's hidden. It's not because it's difficult to see. It's not because there's some sort of secretive, uh, you know, illusion that's hidden the door behind a curtain that you have to seek out some kind of mystery to find it. No, the, the gate is easy to see. There are a few who find it because they see it and reject it. Because they understand it and they go, yeah, that's not the way I want to, I want to live for myself. I want to try and become rich. I want to, I want to be, hold on to my freedom. I want to gather whatever I can and keep it, Right? I don't want to walk a narrow path. I don't want to walk a hard path. I don't want to walk a path of rejection. I certainly don't want to walk a path of sacrifice and pain. I certainly don't want to take up my cross and be crucified with Christ. And so it isn't that the the gate here that the Lord Jesus is difficult to find. We understand that Jesus came and died for the sins of the world, that all who will put their faith in him can be redeemed. It's not, it's not some mystery that's only available to a few, but rather that we, when we hear about this truth, when we hear that Jesus has a way we can walk, that there's a kingdom life that we've been invited into, we evaluate it and we go, yeah, I really like that speech. I really love his articulation. I love the oratory nature of what he had to say, but I will not do it. It's a hard way. It's a lonely way. It's a painful way. And few, he says, there are that are on it. The question then becomes for us, have we made the decision to enter by the gate? Have we made the decision to walk the narrow way, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult. Proverbs 14, 12 says that most people will make the decision to walk the broader path. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. There's a way that seems right to a man. Remember on the broad path, which is literally any other philosophy, any other way of thinking, any other approach on that broad path, it's very comfortable in this life. It's fun, it's friendly, it's easy, people like you, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a good, it's a good path. But the end of that road is destruction. Destruction, right? Eternal separation from God in a place called hell, separated from him forever. So yeah, it's a broad, easy life on the, on the wide path. But it ends in destruction. Conversely, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through me. It will not be easy. It will be hard. Matthew 10, Jesus says, all men will persecute you because of me. They'll hate you. They'll they'll accuse you of things falsely. They'll drag you before their magistrates. They'll call you the devil. Your parents will try and kill you. Your children will try and kill you. I mean, he paints a pretty bleak picture. But he says, though it's a narrow road and it's a hard road to walk the path I'm on, Jesus says, to reveal me in your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. It is not an easy path, but it is the only path that leads to life. It's the only path that leads to life. So the choice you make, Jesus is saying, is do you want to live an easy life for this blip on the radar that is our earthly existence and then live eternity separated from God? Destruction. 
Or, or do you want to live a difficult life now in this blip that is our earthly existence, following in the footsteps of Jesus, putting him on display in your thoughts and attitudes, knowing that while that path is hard and sometimes lonely and sometimes painful and sometimes full of rejection and accusation, that it leads to life. Jesus invites us to enter through the narrow gate. He said all of this and now he says, will you do it? Will you do it? And that everything he says here at the end is going to stack up on that. But not only is he emphasizing in this invitation the fact that it will, it will be sort of, uh, it will be our nature to want to walk the easy path. And in fact, that's why it's a popular way and there are a lot of people that are on it. It will be our nature to want to go the easier route, to reject the narrow gate. Not only does he say it's our, our nature to do that and it tends to be the trend, but he also gives us a warning here. He gives us a warning. Look at 15 uh, through 20. He says, beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus gives us a warning here. He says, when you're trying to decide which gate to enter through, you need to know that it won't just be your own sort of natural predilection, which will lead you to want to take the easy, broad route. But there are also people along the way who will be calling you to the broad route. There are people who will be calling you to the broad route. And the thing that makes them the most dangerous is that they will do it in the trappings of faith. That they will do it by pretending to be followers of me. He says, watch out for what? False prophets. False prophets. These are people who put on an air of religiosity. They know the right language. They know the right moves. They know the right things to say. But inside, even though outwardly they look like sheep, even though outwardly they look like people who are on the narrow path, inwardly, he says, they are ravenous wolves. And they're looking for people to devour, right? He says you have to be able to figure out when someone isn't just sort of walking the, the broad path themselves, but is calling others to walk the broad path with them. Now you might go, why would there ever be a false prophet? Why would anybody ever do Why would anybody ever invite somebody else to come and walk the path to destruction with them? Well, the bottom line is we like company on the broad path, right? If you've decided to be in pursuit of your own power or to be in pursuit of your own wealth or to be in pursuit of your own pleasure, if you've rejected the call of Christ to live a life of love, to live a life of meekness, to live a life of spiritual poverty, and instead you've decided that you want to live a life of power and recognition and fame and wealth and pleasure and joy and the affirmations of other people, we don't want to do that alone. You want to make yourself feel better by drawing other people to you, other people who will look at you and go, good for you, way to go false prophets who affirm what we already sort of want to hear. The Bible talks about them in several places. I'll just give you two. Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 23, 16. This is what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. I will tell you, this isn't just a thing that we see happening in the ancient world. I get at least an email a week right now, 2020, I get at least an email a week from someone who's pointing me or sending me a link or sending me an article or sending me to a video of a false prophet who is 
powerful and famous and looking to gain advantage for himself in this day and age. And it's not just one person. There are several. We have false prophets just like this who are taking advantage of YouTube, who are taking advantage of podcasting, who are taking advantage of live streaming, and they're using it to affirm affirm and to uh, propel their own selfish agenda. This isn't just something that happened, uh, you know, 3,000 years ago. This is something that continues to happen today. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, those who would ignore the word of the Lord, which calls us to what? Spiritual poverty, to meekness, to mercy, to peace, to love, to compassion, to kindness. Those who would set that aside and instead would say, you know what? I think a follower of Christ should be angry. I think a follower of Christ should be judgmental. I think a follower of Christ should be hateful. I think a follower of Christ should care only about himself. There are leaders in our world today that will say, you go for it. You're absolutely right. Care only about yourself. Care only about your wants. Care only about your needs. And you will not see disaster come upon you. God says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. He says it's false. In Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 1, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer, a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord, your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He says, there are prophets who will come up and they may be powerful. They may be articulate. They may be able to wow you with all that they can present. And they will say, Hey, you've seen who I am. You've seen what I can do. Let's go after other gods. Now, maybe in the context of Deuteronomy, it was talking about gods with specific names like Baal, right? But in the world in which we live today, there are people who will say, Hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. You like my teaching. You've seen all the things I do. You like my voice. Come with me and let's go after power. Let's go after money. Let's go after serving ourselves. Let's go after selfishness and pride and greed and gluttony. No disaster will come upon us. They are false prophets. Jesus has entered by the narrow gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are a lot of people on it. He says, be careful that you watch for false prophets. You won't be able to tell who they are based on how they look or what they say. You will only be able to tell who they are, back to Matthew chapter 7, by their fruit. Look at what Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says, you can't just look at how they look. You can't just look at where they're standing. You can't look at the emblems that are sewn onto their jackets or the bumper stickers slapped on the back of their car. You have to look at what is being produced. So what is the fruit? What's the fruit he's talking about? Well, the fruit that he's talking about is everything he's already espoused in in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a poverty of spirit. It's a mourning over one's own sin. It's a humility. It's a meekness. It's a service of others. It's a sacrificial heart. It's a desire to be a preservative and an illuminating uh, illuminating source. It's a rejection of legalism and a morality that says, as long as I do the right things, it doesn't matter what's going on in my heart. It's a rejection of false religiosity that only puts on a religious charade for the praise that can be gained or the followers that can be accumulated or the books that can be sold. 
That is not the fruit you're looking for. What is the fruit you're looking for? Well, the fruit of the, of the character and life of Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience. Look at the fruit. Matthew chapter 12, by the way, says it's not even just about fruit. It's about being the right kind of tree. Matthew twelve thirty three says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus says it's not really even about the fruit, because you could just put on love and joy and peace and patience. It's about what's being produced, being the right kind of tree. In John 15, Jesus will equate that with abiding in him. He's the vine, right? John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this. In John 15, 4 and 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's about abiding in Christ and watching the character and attitude, the mindset and heart of Christ being revealed in us. Many times when people send me their links or they send me their questions or they send me uh, copies of books they want me to read and there are things that are being espoused by false prophets in our day and age, my question back will be, what about this person looks like Jesus? What about this person looks like Jesus? Help me see the meekness. Help me see the sacrificial nature. Help me see the love and compassion and kindness and generosity. Because if we don't see Jesus being made manifest in their life, then they aren't a true prophet. And what they're espousing must be rejected. It's a call to the broad way. It's a call to the broad gate. If they don't look like Jesus, he says, you'll be able to tell by their fruit. And it's not about producing the right fruit, but being the right kind of tree. Titus 1 will say, those who profess to know God deny it by their actions. We'll look at Titus in January and February. But in Titus 1, it talks about people who are divisive. And it says they profess to know God, but they deny that profession based on their works. Their works deny what their voice is claiming. So Jesus is entered by the narrow gate and be careful. There will be people who look spiritual, who look like sheep that are trying to lead you to the false path. You've got to look at their fruit. Don't look at their uniform, but look at the fruit. He says, because it isn't just about outward appearance. And he goes on uh, to continue this thought. Go back to Matthew chapter seven, continuing this thought in verse 21, then Matthew seven twenty-one. he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Jesus makes an important distinction here. He says, it's not enough to use my name. Lord, Lord, by the way, is not just a name for a master, but it's a recognition of his divinity. He says, not everybody who recognizes some of the right things, who calls me by the right name. Some of these broad gates, right? If there's one broad gate, but it contains sort of other little gates, some of these broad gates have Jesus's Lord painted on top of them, right? Jesus said, it's not enough to just use my name. It's not enough to call me the right thing. Um, in uh, what verses? In Luke 6, 46. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 6, 46? He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He says, the proof isn't in using the right titles, but the proof is in obedience. The proof is in aligning your life with my character and my call, with the things I've called you to do and the things I've modeled for you, that's the proof. He said there will be some, back to Matthew chapter 7, there will be some in the last days who will say, Lord, Lord, 
He says, it will not be those who say, Lord, Lord. He says in 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is saying here that true knowledge of Christ is proven in obedience. True knowledge of Christ is proven in obedience. One of the reasons why uh, the pendulum in churches sort of swung away from an altar call where people could just come forward and, and pray a salvation prayer and walk out and feel like something was done is that we've recognized it isn't enough to just say some magic words. We understand that it isn't enough to just pray the, the prayer at the back of the four spiritual laws book, but that you put your faith in Christ and your life then is transformed. You follow in obedience. Jesus says, there are going to be some in the last days who will say to me, by the way, note here that Jesus is claiming that he's the one on the throne, right? That he is the one in the judgment seat. So don't miss early in Jesus's ministry in, in the greatest sermon he ever gave in the sermon on the Mount, Jesus claims to be the judge. He says, they'll come to me and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty works? And here's the thing. I I, I honestly don't know. I don't know whether these are people who are trying to trick Jesus, right? And they're trying to go, hey, you know, we did some stuff. We went to a couple rallies, right? We we went to church a few times. We saw some miraculous stuff happen. I don't really think that's what we're talking about. I don't think anybody at the judgment seat is trying to trick Jesus. I think these are honestly people who feel like doing stuff for God is enough. Who feel like just going through the motions and doing stuff for God is enough. And he's saying it isn't. It's not enough to do things in my name. We have to know each other. There has to be this knowledge of one another. There is a call for something deeper. What matters is Christ. In the end, Jesus says he will cast them out. It says in 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you workers of law- lawlessness. That doesn't feel like lawlessness. If anything, it feels like those people are just doing the lawful stuff, right? They're casting out demons and they're prophesying. They're doing mighty works. Those don't seem like the lawless until you remember what Jesus has said about the law. Jesus has said compliance with the law consists of what? Loving God and loving others. So lawlessness, lawlessness essentially would be a rejection of God and a rejection of others. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything else is wrapped up in loving other people. First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 2 says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Well, what's the problem with a false prophet? There is no love in the mouth of a false prophet. There is no love in the broad gate or on the broad road. Why? Because it's leading people to destruction. It might seem loving in the moment, but it is, it is empty of love because it is drawing people. Blind guides leading people down a path of destruction. Jesus says, there will be some who will come to me and say, we did this and we did that and we did that. And he says, I'll look at them and say, you were lawless. You were workers of lawlessness. Because you were doing it for your own selfish purposes. Because you were drawing people away, these false prophets. Alignment with the will of God is the deciding factor. Alignment with the will of God is the deciding factor. So what is the will of God? Well, the will of God is that people would know Christ and trust in him. Right? 
The will of God is that people would know Christ and trust in him. In John 17, which we studied not too long ago, Jesus says, I, I, I've done the thing you sent me to do. I fulfilled the mission that you sent me to fulfill. I've announced the coming of the kingdom of God and I'm passing this mission on to my ambassadors. They'll carry on the very same thing. What is the will of God? That people would see Christ revealed. That people would see Christ revealed. That is the difference. And so then here in Matthew chapter 7, he says, enter through the narrow gate, but beware, not only will you be inclined to walk the easier path, but there will be people who are actively leading you to walk the easier path. And on that way, you may get into a place even where you're doing what seem like religious things, but you don't actually know me. And knowing me is the will of God. Knowing me and loving others is the will of God. And he finishes with a very familiar story. You've probably heard songs and other things. But he's talking here about, okay, well, where, where do we go? Listen to what he says in this last section, verse 24 and following. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus is drawing a difference between two different approaches, basically. And he's talking about foundation. So he's talking about what your life is founded upon. Jesus has already told us that he's the gate. We saw in John 15 that he says he's the vine. He's the source of the fruit in our life. Here, Jesus is pointing again at himself as the rock. He's pointing at himself as the foundation. It's not dissimilar from what Jesus has said. Uh, Remember what Jesus even says to Peter, right? Uh, Jesus says to Peter, uh, when, when Peter sort of claims that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus looks at Peter and says, I tell you, Simon Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. Not only is the church built upon this rock, but the individual lives of the stones in the church, that's us, are built upon the rock, which is Christ. He says there's two different kinds of people. And notice here, there's, there's a subtle difference. When you're reading it at first, you might miss it. The houses they build are essentially the same. Uh, the storm of life that comes is essentially the same. We all face the same storms. We all build our houses to look essentially the same way. The difference between one and the other, the one who builds his house upon the rock and the one who builds his house upon the sand, the difference is the one who builds his life upon the rock or his house upon the rock is the one who hears and obeys. But notice the one who builds his life upon the sand only hears, right? Look at it again. He says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The difference is not hearing. This morning, through the camera lens, right? The, the seven or eight people that are in this room, the, the people that are watching live, the people that will watch it on a jog later this week, right? The difference between us here, Jesus is pointing out, is, is not hearing. We're all hearing it. You're hearing it, right? We've all heard it over the last many weeks. We all hear it. The difference between, between stability and destruction, the difference is doing. Just what James has said, James 1.22. We just looked at that not too long ago too. Do not just be hearers of the word, but be doers. The difference here is the doing. Those who hear and do, those who hear and do not do. It is certainly worth taking time to ask yourself, are you a hearer or are you a hearer and a doer? 
it was interesting in the midst of our study, uh, our teaching team meeting, uh, Kristen Hartman said that when she went to Israel, this passage took on new light for her because uh, part of the trip to Israel, which hopefully we'll get to take again as a church, maybe next year, who knows what's happening with the world. But um, one of the things you see when you go to Israel is what's called a wadi. And it's a, it's a basically a river valley. And in Israel, the river valleys are the only places where sand actually exists. I mean, you get a lot of dirt everywhere else, but there's sand in the wadi because the river runs there, right? It's the only sandy place. And it makes tons of sense that you would want to build a house in the wadi because it's beautiful. There's green trees. It's like the only place where there's shade, where there's green trees. Uh, one of my favorite wadis in Israel is called En Gedi. That's the place where David confronted Saul. And you can actually go there and see the caves and know that one of those caves was the one Saul was in when David cut off the bottom of his cloak. It's actually really cool. But it's awesome. I love going to Engedi because it's lush and there's grass and there's trees and there's water flowing. There's waterfalls. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful place to build a house. If you were trying to pick a place in Israel to build a house, you would want to build a house in the wadi because it's lovely and it's easy and it would just make things so comfortable. Water's right there. Shade's right there. Fruit trees right there. But the wadi is also the place where when the rains come, the entire thing gets washed out. The wadi is what his listeners would have been thinking of at the time. It makes perfect sense that you'd want to build your house upon something easy and beautiful and enviable of other people. You don't want to build your house out in the middle of the desert. You don't want to build your house in the middle of the desert. That would be hard. There are very few people that would want to do that, right? Jesus is saying, if you build your house in the wrong place, when the storm comes and the storm comes for all of us, Your house will be washed away because you haven't built your house upon something foundational, something firm. Jesus is that foundation. Jesus is the rock. He is the gate. He is the vine. And if we want to continue, I don't know how many of you can even remember this. Maybe you you weren't even here, but when we studied Hebrews, right? All the way back to our study in Hebrews. In Hebrews 3.14, it says, we know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. We know we share in Christ if we continue until the end with the faith we had at first. One of the major points of the book of Hebrews is continuance. Well, how do we continue? By rooting our lives upon Christ. There are a lot of foundations you could use that are easier, that are more beautiful, that are more enviable by other people. Admittedly, Jesus says, following me is a narrow path and there are few people on it because it's hard and difficult, but it leads to life. Conversely, there is a broad path that everybody else is on and you'll be comfortable for a season and it will feel like you're with a bunch of other people because you literally will be and it, it will make no demands of you. It'll be easy there, but it will not last. It will not continue. When the storms of life come and they will, your life will be dashed to pieces and ultimately you'll be destroyed. Jesus finishes his message with an invitation. He's saying to us, don't just sit back and go, oh yeah, meekness. Spiritual poverty, good ideas, Jesus. That's interesting, right? Oh, yeah, salt and light. Be a preservative in the world. That's very interesting. Oh, yeah, don't, don't just do religious things for your own selfish gain. Very, very good. That's a great reminder. Mm. I might repeat that to somebody else. I might sew that on a doily or stick it up on my refrigerator. Don't overvalue stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God. Mm, mm, that's good. That's meaty. Don't judge other people. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, Jesus is going, I'm not interested in your astonishment. I'm not interested in your appreciation for my message. I want you to enter. Enter into the narrow gate. The invitation from Christ at the end of this sermon is for movement. 
It's worth noting in verses 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Again, as I've already said, astonishment is not what Jesus was after. What was he after? He was after movement. He wanted them to move. Church, throughout this message, Jesus has been inviting us to immigrate, to think and live according to the customs and values of a new homeland. It is unblushingly odd. It is upside down. It will not blend in or fit in. It will not be comfortable or easy. But it is right and true. It is right and true. Are we willing to forget what we've heard? To renounce our prideful, self-centered, legalistic, moralistic, manipulative, greedy, anxious, judgmental ways? Or will we hear all this and build our lives where it's easiest? The temptation will be for us to hear all of this and build our lives where it's easiest. But Jesus is looking at us today and saying, enter in to me. I'm the gate. I'm the path. And this is the only way to life. And so I look at you in synchronicity with the Lord Jesus and say, don't just walk away and forget what you've heard. But surrender your life to Christ. Build your life upon him. Walk this path. It is hard. But it is true. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a heart of obedience. That we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers. That we would have the discernment and the wisdom to look in in this age and in the next. And recognize the places where people have appropriated religion. Or appropriated the name of Jesus. Or appropriated the name of faith in service of all kinds of selfish endeavors. And that we would recognize that's not something new, that's something timeless that has been happening forever that you told us to be on guard against because those false prophets will lead us down a path to destruction. But that you are the true prophet, that you are the one whose voice can be relied upon, that you are the source of real fruit, that you are the rock upon which we found our lives, that you are the gate through which we must enter, that you are the path that we can walk and reveal you. Give us the courage. Give us the wisdom to be hearers and doers of this kingdom life. Not because it's easy, but because it is true. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.